So welcome to ProTalks, our podcast where we chat with CEOs and founders of some of the most interesting and influential asset management companies in the world. I think um, founding or being in a small company um, focuses the mind. So it makes you really think about what matters uh, and what leads to success. Um, and, and all of that really is driven uh, by clients. Today we are here with Michael Jon Leitel, CEO of Tabula Investment Management. Thank you so much for being here with us today, Michael. A real pleasure to be with you, Patricia. Um, so first of all, um, could you let us know a bit about yourself and uh, so what's your background and how did you end up in the financial industry? Sure. Uh, <clears throat> I've been in finance for about 30 years. Uh, I, I entered it straight out of university. Um, <clears throat> I studied um, economics and international relations, not a particularly finance-oriented background. Um, and I kind of fell into working at Morgan Stanley uh, And, and I, I spent 18 years at Morgan Stanley uh, in a variety of different roles, uh, started in M&A, corporate finance, and worked my way into capital markets and fixed income and sales and trading up through uh, wealth management and uh, structured products and electronic trading, and then ended up in equity. So I had a pretty broad experience over 18 years. But what it basically was is a series of sort of two to three year Uh, ventures within a very large organization. Each time I was trying in my own way without realizing it, trying to be entrepreneurial, trying to recognize an opportunity and mm -hmm. develop it. Um, after, at the end of my time, Morgan Stanley, um, there was a new idea inside the firm to create an uh, ETF issuer, an asset manager. Um, and Morgan Stanley was going to be an investor in that along with Goldman Sachs. And so um, I joined, uh, well, I set up that venture and, and then decided to join it full time along with a colleague from Morgan Stanley. And we, we found what it's now uh, was called Source, uh, which is now Invesco's ETF business. And we spent about uh, seven years developing that business from, from nothing to about uh, $25 billion in assets. Um, <clears throat> and then uh, that was sold to Invesco. Uh, after that, I spent a little bit of time at, at BlackRock um, uh, looking at their uh, ETF business, particularly in the US. Um, Uh, and then I uh, set up this business, uh, Tabula Investment Management, which is an ETF issuer uh, focused primarily on fixed income and ESG. But um, but that's sort of been our origins. We're now heading in various directions. And uh, so, like having been worked for like large corporations and now work for a smaller one, uh, which do you think are the main differences in terms of like workload between uh, like a big asset management company and, and a smaller one? You know, it's interesting. Um, <clears throat> asset managers are asset managers, and they, they try to do the same thing, whether they're 10 people or 10,000. Um, they're, they're creating new product. Um, they're trying to sell it. They've got an internal um, uh, fund management, asset management division, which, which actually runs the products once they're created. And then, of course, there's the guts of the, the CFO and all the things you have to do at human re relations and stuff like that. Um, <clears throat> but The way you go about doing the business um, has a lot to do with focus. Um, so you can find large asset managers where, um, you know, you're in a small division and you're extremely focused um, mm -hmm. uh, and it feels like you're you're in a small company. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, you can work for small companies and by definition, small companies have to be more focused, you know, and the, the, uh, the challenges in a small company are greater because the risks are greater because you're, you're basically determining whether you succeed or fail in aggregate as a business, 
um, by what you do, as opposed to whether you have a good year and a bad year within a large organization, which which has a, quite a different flavor to it. And and what would you say? So you said like you have an entrepreneurial spirit, and and you also like manage like kind of a small projects inside of the large corporations. But you are also a founder, so you you also founded a company. So what would you say is the main difference between you working like for a large corporation and you being the founder of the <clears throat> sorry of the asset management company? I think um, <clears throat> founding or being in a small company. Um, focuses the mind. So it makes okay. you really think about what matters uh, and what leads to success. Um, and, and all of that really is driven uh, by clients. So <clears throat> ultimately, if you're managing money, uh, you're managing money for somebody. If you're not managing your own money, then you're going out and funding investors who, who want you to do something for them. Um, and it's very easy uh in a big business <clears throat> to have kind of open-ended conversations with clients and, and build relationships with them, but be kind of unclear as to where the rubber meets the road. I, what is the, so what, well, what am I really trying to do for you? Because if you sit in a large organization, you know, you, you have, um, you have kind of, you have a desk, you have get paid every day. You, mm -hmm. you know, you, you have conversations with your boss about objectives. You do group meetings. Um, But you don't your 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 focus doesn't get drawn to the the basic simple problem, which is that you need to find people who who have problems that you can solve, mm -hmm. and that by solving their problems you create um, performance and, and invest high quality investments for them, and and thereby you're able to charge fees and make money and, and exist. Um, the simplicity of that, I think, often in, in larger organizations uh, gets subsumed by lots of other, you know, um, uh, internal uh, political discussions around business building and theory and so on. So, so I often think of it as the, um, <clears throat> the difference between theory and practice. It's much mm -hmm. easier to focus on theory in a large organization. In a small organization, it's all about practice. Okay. And um, so coming back to your current position at Tabula, um, uh, so Tabula focuses uh, mainly on, things, on fixed income exposure and is, uh, is ESG as well important in the, in the investment process and how do you apply it? Yeah, I mean, look, um, when I was creating Tabula a few years ago, um, ESG, had we'd talked about it for decades, right? Mm -hmm. um, but, the, but the problem had always been Um, when will people get serious and, and make it front and center of their investment process? And, and my sense was a few years ago that this is when it's happening, right? It, it has to, we've run out of time to talk about this stuff. We have to do something. Mm -hmm. And so we built ESG as, as a core component, not, not as, you know, I, I think it's important to remember that ESG is, you know, is a way of thinking about how you invest Um, around the globe, um, in and of itself, it isn't necessarily an investment philosophy. But when you combine okay. it with something like fixed income, um, it then changes the way you ask every question about the investments you're making. So, you know, when we set up Tabula, we we became a member of the PRI. We joined a mm -hmm. couple other organizations. We started to try and have an influence in the background. Um, and then in our products, we started to apply various approaches to give the investors in our funds the ability to influence the outcome. So, you know, we have to think about different types of investment approaches. <clears throat> If you're doing broad investment funds, mm -hmm. um, then 
applying ESG is really about cleaning up the way that they go about doing their investing, changing maybe a few dynamics around what they invest in, but it's not driving every single uh, investment that you make. On the other hand, there are impact funds who are only about um, investing in the companies at the leading edge of changing, you know, climate or uh, or social issues or, um, you know, uh, but this that's fundamentally two different approaches. Now, the part of the market that I work in, you know, we're dealing with the fact that there's $1.5 trillion invested in the ETF space in Europe. There's probably 15, 10, 15 trillion invested in asset managers around Europe. Um, there's a huge amount of money already invested and needing to be invested on an ongoing basis. And, and it's not possible um, to be too specific with, all that money because it, it the, the, the quantums are too large. You need liquid assets. You need an mm-hmm. ability to apply your approaches across very um, large amounts of money, and you need to be able to do it uh, on a continuous basis. So what we've focused on is, is trying to apply um, broader investment themes, but doing them in a way that is having an impact, uh, particularly in the climate space. I, I just want to be a little bit more clear because I, I think um, – there's a, there's an issue around ESG, and that is that these three letters get thrown around a lot, and people are pretty unclear about uh, what it means. Um, and 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 so I want to be very clear that in our space, particularly in fixed income, the greatest opportunity for applying ESG is in climate. Um, it's where we have the most data, and mm-hmm. it's where we can um, actually influence the behavior of the companies that we invest in. Um, and so what we have focused on is uh, Paris-aligned approaches uh, to investing in fixed income. And Paris-aligned means that there, there are a set of guidelines uh, around the Paris Accords from 2015 that say in order to achieve the one and a half degree um, targets uh, that, that we've set out, um, people need to do uh, companies need to do, need to do certain things. And that, the first thing that they need to do is that they need to cut their carbon emissions by 50%. Mm-hmm. And then um, every year they need to continue to cut um, by another 7%. And some very helpful people in the academic space applied, uh, created these guidelines by applying what came out of the um, Paris process to investing. What we've spent our time doing is is specifically going after these these Paris-aligned approaches and applying it to investment grade and high yield in Europe, uh, in the U.S., in mm-hmm. Asia, um, because we know that our investors are um, getting a lot of pressure internally and from their clients um, to, to meet these, these objectives. And the only ways that they can meet them is if they have partners um, who are actually um, uh, doing the same. And, and frankly, um, in the uh, passive space, and that is mm-hmm. what most of the ETF space is, um, there are only a very limited number of people applying these approaches specifically to fixed income. Um, there's been quite a lot of uh, doing this in, in equities, um, mm-hmm. but not very much in, in fixed income. And so, you know, for example, we were the first ones to launch uh, in Europe um, and, and actually globally a Paris-aligned investment-grade approach mm-hmm. and, and a, uh, a high-yield approach that was Paris-aligned. Now, I'm sure within a short amount of time, lots of people will come along and do it. But, you know, when you, I think you were talking about sort of leading and, and making things happen, making change. Um, even as a small company, you know, what we've been looking to do is kind of lead that, 
lead that change. Okay, so so fantastic. So I learned that that you were born in the in the UK and and then you were raised in the in the USA and now you are back in the UK. So uh, do you see many like cultural differences? Uh, not only like in a personal way, but also like in terms of corporate culture. I, I see very large differences socially and, and politically. Um, in fact, a lot of times I think that people assume because the US and the UK speak English um, mm -hmm. that we must have a lot in common and be most similar to each other. Um, but I actually feel, uh, you know, the US um, is often people raise the question of is it a is it a melting pot or is it a salad bowl and and what that terminology means is do all people come into the US and they're kind of subsumed into an American culture and kind of melded into one thing or is it a bunch of individuals and, and individual uh, people who come from different cultures and so on mm -hmm. all kind of living together and You know, I think at this stage in, in the development of the US the US is very much a salad bowl it's lots of different people from lots of different places There's some sort of central culture, but it, but it's um, it's it's much more commercially um, based, and it's based on some principles around independence and freedom and um, self-expression and, and being true to yourself and all these things. Mm -hmm. But but it's but it fundamentally has brought together people from all over the world, and, and a lot of people, obviously from um, from Spanish-speaking places. Obviously, uh, Spanish is the second language of the mm -hmm. U.S. at this point. Um, and so I really feel that a lot of the dynamic in the U.S. is much more open and 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 responsive and and emotional um, than really where the U.K. is, or the, uh, certainly where the U.K. was 50, 60 years ago. I think mm -hmm. again, I think living in London, I find that things are changing, but I feel that um, having lived between two cultures, that there's there is a pretty big difference, and I think some people uh, assume because we all speak the same language that that. That, that it's not the case and and they think that somebody mm -hmm. living in the UK who is Polish or Spanish or whatever is going to feel more foreign in the UK but but actually a lot of times um, you know I felt this real pull between you know my mother was English and my father's American mm -hmm. um, and I and I grew up in the States um, spending time in the UK and then I moved back to the UK when I was 21 22 um, but but a lot of times I felt very much like a, a foreigner uh, except in London. You know, I, th I think London is 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 its own place, mm -hmm. um, and I think you and I talked about this. The yeah, obviously, the capital cities of countries are always a bit different from the rest of the country. But I think that difference between London and the rest of the country um, is 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 greater than in most places, um, and I think that's also part of the reason why. Um, there, there's been such a backlash between other parts of the country and London and the feeling that that it's it's not fair um, the relationship between the two parts but but for me um, I, I do feel that there are very big differences between the US uh, and the UK um, and I also think you know the UK as much as we try to deny it through brexit and so on the UK mm -hmm. is part of Europe um, it's part of an older, a bunch of countries with, with long um, with cultures that have developed over thousands of years. Um, there's a lot of history uh, as to why we do what we do and how we behave towards each other and, and why we take certain things as being important. And that's just fundamentally not the case in the U.S. In the U.S., everything is up for grabs. Everything can mm -hmm. be questioned. Um, and, and that, you know, it, neither is good nor, you know, the, there's good and bad to both, um, but, but they are very different. Well, yeah, I understand, like, um, so 
like talking about London, I guess London is like a small country inside of a, <laughs> of a country, right? Like Island, yeah. you see, you see uh, people from uh, different backgrounds and and you know coming together, and and I think that's that's beautiful. And I guess like the states is like that in a large scale, um, in the way like uh, you you uh, put it. So so yeah, I think. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, I think there, I mean, I understand that there are differences and, and in terms of like, uh, in terms of work, like in terms of the cultural, the, the, the corporate culture, like uh, that was like the second question. Do you see like many differences of like, uh, the, the work environment or the, or the corporate culture in the States and, and in London? Um, I think there are some quite big differences. Um, <clears throat> I, I think you know, in the financial services space, the, the thing that's been the most interesting to me about London is London's role within Europe. So um, whether we're denying it or not, um, the reality is that the relevance of London comes from its position um, as a financial hub in, uh, in Europe, um, which, you know, sits alongside places like New York and Hong Kong and uh, Singapore and so on as as where investment and businesses come together. Mm-hmm. And the thing that makes um, doing business in, in London particularly interesting is because you're, you're accessing so many different countries, cultures, ways of investing, attitudes towards investing um, through, uh, you know, when you, build, when you build an asset management business, for example, in London, mm-hmm. and this is what we did, um, you, you need salespeople covering the whole of Europe. Right. So we have UK and Nordics and French speaking, German speaking, Italian speaking sales. Um, mm-hmm. We have to passport our, our funds into 15 different countries. Um, we have to be aware of different currencies. You know, even though we created the euro, we still have lots of con- uh, lots of currencies left in Europe. But when I started in the 1990s, obviously the euro didn't exist. And mm-hmm. so every single country had a different currency. And we spent most of our time um, doing cross-currency swaps and dealing with um, interest rate differentials between different countries and differences in the government bond markets and issuing bonds for, for corporates and in different currencies. That's been narrowed down slightly um, mm-hmm. by the existence of the euro. But the fact that you, in France and in Germany and in Spain, that you invest in euros doesn't take away the fact that actually the regulatory environments in each country are slightly different. The way of treating uh, retail investors is different, and the countries have held on to a certain amount of control over mm-hmm. how their uh, retail distribution works in their countries. Um, and the approach to investment differs. So even within the Nordics, for example, when you look at Denmark and, and Sweden and um, Finland, you get mm-hmm. very different approaches um, to investing. To what matters? What you know is it the, the risk reward dynamic? Um, you know, and we we see some countries that are much more aggressive uh, in, in wanting to to achieve higher returns, and other countries that are much more worried in defending the, their capital um, and the and and the principle that they're investing, and they'd rather have a lower return uh, as long as they have limited fees um, and lots of protection of their capital. So. You know, these differences, you know, it's really funny because people come from the States to, to come work in London and, mm-hmm. and they, they assume that it's like the United States of Europe, you know, and they, and they completely miss the fact that, first of all, the U.S. has one tax system that covers every state, which is, is meaningful. Um, 
everybody does speak English, um, maybe in different ways, but they all speak English. Um, they and and everybody uses the dollar. <clears throat> you know, those three things put together make a very different business environment mm-hmm. from, from Europe, where we've been working. You know, over decades. Um, even centuries and millennia to try and bring uh, the place together, um, but but there still are pretty meaningful differences right down to the uh, the way that people go about living their lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, I mean that's like huge differences in terms of like um, yeah the currency, like the the languages, and and yeah I, I find that as well. Like people sometimes when they come in from the states, they think that. Europe is like just one and and then they they find it like quite interesting that we have like different cultures between Europe and and different languages and and they also think that everything the Americans assume um, that the Europeans will be the same as them that everything's up for grabs like you can debate everything you know everything's on the table people will change their minds about you know even their basic beliefs that is not mm-hmm. the case right We, we all come from different cultures around Europe that ha, you know, are grounded in, in, in centuries and millennia of, of, a, of beliefs and in you know, whether those are uh, fundamental cultural beliefs, religious beliefs, etc., which, which mean that everything is not up for grabs, right? We can debate yeah, exactly. the, the practical application of things, you know, how to go about executing a task, but we're not going to debate you know, what we think is seminally important. Yeah, that's true. Like, I think uh, culturally there are many differences, and and I guess like uh, the the, dif- the main difference as well. Like as you said, is like we, we are a lot of cultures like in in a, like in a in a, on a space, and and like we all have different beliefs, different values, and and uh, yeah, and it's dif- I mean I guess is that that is different from the stage where like people kind of share kind of the same values, and. and- From a financial services perspective, that's what makes um, building, running, uh, developing financial services businesses that cover the whole of Europe particularly interesting. I, th- I think if you develop a financial services business that only tackles one country, mm-hmm. then all of that goes away. But if you try to do what Usitz, um did by um, developing a fund structure that works for all European countries mm-hmm. uh, and then sell it in all European countries, it opens up that challenge. How do you build products um, that are equally relevant to people across all of those different backgrounds and cultures and investment approaches? You know, how do you build things that are, that are, that are flexible enough to be relevant um, to, to all of those approaches? You know, we, when we're selling to into Switzerland um, for wealth in Switzerland and we're selling to Finland, to insurance companies in Finland. Obviously, those are completely different sets of, uh, of drivers and, and, and approaches. Um, and so you need to use a structure like Usitz, which, which allows you to build a very wide range of, of funds. Um, and then you need to personally as a business, and this takes us back to what you were asking me about, you know, what's interesting about building a business. You need to really think, what is the problem that I'm trying to solve? Mm-hmm. There's no such thing as just like creating a good product. There, there is no good product that exists in 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 theory. It's all practical. It's all about practical application uh, and solving problems that people have, and solving problems that they have today, uh, and that they're going to run into very soon. Right? There's no point mm-hmm. in building a product that solves a problem that someone's going to have in five years because you know your, the product will be gone by the time they have the product. 
yeah, I guess like this, this, this combination of uh, trying to find like how to solve people problems, but also like create the, the right product, right? To solve these problems at that very moment. So, so I guess like when you have a, when you are solving a problem and you also have a good product, then, you know, it's easier to get like everywhere. And yeah, so we are getting to the, like to almost the end of the conversation. I just wanted to ask you a couple of more questions. Um, so one of them is, uh, so what do you like to do when you have like uh, some spare time? I, I remember you said you don't have spare time, but yeah, I don't know, like if you like doing some sport, being with your family. Um, yeah. So, I mean, as I said, I, I have limited spare time, not, not only because, you know, um, developing a new business is intense, but also because um, I do have um, quite a sprawling family. I, I have... Um, uh, I have three kids of my own, two kids by my partner, um, and so I have five kids whenever we do stuff, and, and they invariably have friends. We went to Portugal mm -hmm. on holiday this summer, took seven kids uh, with us, and, and, and that kind of changes the dynamic of going on holiday when you have so many different personalities and, and desires and so on. Um, I, you know, for myself, uh, I've always been very physically active. Um, I, I do, you know, running and working out and cycling, and I ran the London Marathon in, in September, oh, wow. October of this of last year. N not because I really wanted to run a marathon, um, but <clears throat> a, 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 a friend colleague in the office had a great charity, um, mm -hmm. uh, which was uh, an orphanage um, in, um, in Nepal that he that he had been supporting for ten years, and mm -hmm. he had a ticket, you know, to, to run the marathon, but he couldn't do it because he'd hurt himself. And so he needed somebody to help him raise money. And so mm -hmm. uh, I really did. I was like, I don't have time for this, but, but I got to do it because it's the right thing to do. And so um, I got to figure out a way in a relatively short period of time. I think I trained for about five weeks to run the marathon, which is a very short amount of time. But um, but I needed to, to do that and to get around and, and to raise money. We raised about £7,000 for the orphanage, which mm -hmm. ended up being, it's a over 10% of their um, annual uh, budget. So, you know, it, it makes a difference. And, and and I think that's, you know, something I'm always looking to do to try and, if you're going to do something, try and make a difference. Mm -hmm. um, try not to just do something because you're supposed to do it. You know, for me, travel has always been uh, a lot. You know, I, I haven't, I've always lived just in a few places like London and uh, and, and New York and, and uh, a few places in Switzerland and so on. But, um, <clears throat> But I've always traveled to lots of places. I've been to, I think, at least 30, 40 different countries. And again, back to uh, probably 50 years um, to go back to the thing that you and I were talking about, but the, what makes doing business in, in Europe interesting is the variety of cultures. What makes traveling interesting? I mean, there are lots of beautiful, physically beautiful places, but there are also just so many amazing people mm -hmm. uh, to meet. And, and if you stop and you listen, um, you can really learn something about other people's totally different approach uh, to life, to what matters to them, to what drives it, to, to, to how they interact with their families and their friends and so on. So, uh, you know, I, I think that that's really what travel's about. It's not about, um, <clears throat> you know, a, a series of Instagram posts of, of pictures and so on. It, it's, it, it's much more about how the travel changes you, changes your mm -hmm. perspective, uh, and allows you to be more understanding and sympathetic to all of the different types of people and, and, and views that you run into in the world. I totally agree with you. Um, on that note, um, I'm just going to the one of one of the last questions. That is like, what what does success uh, 
mean to you? So uh, this is funny because I often have this discussion with people and, and obviously I'm in financial services and so, you know, money is everything supposedly. Um, and everybody thinks that success looks like a good, a big bank account, a large house, etc. Um, and there's no doubt, look, people have various financial needs that they need to, to, to meet and everybody has a different set of uh, things that matter to them. But to me, success is really uh, about... Um, addressing it and, and digging into it, things that I'm intellectually curious about mm-hmm. uh, and, and about um, really uh, interacting with, connecting with uh, and, 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 and forging strong relationships with people um, that help me to understand better what it really means to be uh, a human. Um, because I think that's the, you know, we talked a bit about ESG and the planet and, and, mm-hmm. and uh, why we have to address climate now and why it's actually too late and we're, we got to play catch up. Um, but, but it's really about, you know, all of us have to ask the question, why am I here? Why does it matter? You know, uh-huh. and, and the time that we have on the planet is relatively short. And a friend just passed me a, um, a website that's all about dying. And it sends uh-huh. you a quote uh, every day, five times a day, something about dying just to remind you in the Buddhists or, very focused on this, the, the importance of death, because you can't truly live if you don't understand the fact that you're going to die and and and, and keep it all in context. And so for me, um, you know, it's all about enjoying and, and being excited by and, and, and interested in what happens to me every day. Uh, and so I talk to a lot of younger people about their careers and what do they want to do. And I always say to them, look, you have to do something that you find fundamentally interesting and exciting, right? Um, because a paycheck, you know, you only get paid once a month. Mm-hmm. A bonus, you only get once a year. Um, you know, buying some car or house or whatever is great, um, but it's not going to get you out of bed every morning, right? The reason mm-hmm. you get out of bed every morning is because you're motivated, and you're motivated by being interested and excited and engaged and having a great group of people that you work with. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and that's really what gets us to do things. And then, um, if we do it well, and if we're successful and lucky and so on, then it results in, in a certain financial rewards. And, and I think this is actually one of the biggest questions that's been raised by the, the pandemic over the last few years is, is what are the, um, work environments, which, which draw that out of us? What are the work env- environments that help us? To, to get the most from ourselves and from our colleagues and and to train young people uh, and to give um, perspective to older people. Um, and, and, and what we're really grappling with, with the, the physicality of, of environments is what level of inter- physical interaction do we need in order to spark that human dynamic that ultimately is the driver of all great businesses? I think that is an amazing description of success, but also... Uh, a great advice for <clears throat> for people um, starting a career or wanting to to find like their own path, you know, towards uh, finance or, or any other or any other career. Um, so, um, thank you so much for for being here with with us today, MJ. Um, it was lovely chatting with you. I hope you have also enjoyed the conversation. Oh, fantastic, Patricia! I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And and yeah, for everyone listening, uh, we will be back in two weeks and follow us on social media and subscribe to our newsletter to be up to date.